Good evening. Uh, it's, it's been quite a while since I've had the opportunity to preach to you over two years, almost three to be exact. Uh, when, when I started thinking about what I wanted to preach, I, I went to Jordan and asked what, what should I preach on? And he said to pick a book and preach through it. So I, I started thinking about what would be a good book of the Bible to preach through. And uh, the book of James was one of the first books that came to my mind. I was raised by a woman who adored uh, that epistle. And so that was one of the first things that came to me. So this evening, uh, we will start the trek through this beautiful letter. And with the frequency with which I preach, I think we can finish it in a quick 20 years or so. Uh, if, if we're lucky, my last sermon in James might be uh, Drew's graduation from high school. So... Uh, with, with that being said, let's, let's begin. Uh, what does it mean to suffer well, church? Uh, I know the phrase to suffer well is one that we are all familiar with and uh, the normal answers usually apply here, but I want us to not only know how to suffer well in our trials, but to understand why suffering is a part of the Christian life. Suffering and trials are, are not foreign to the Christian. As a matter of fact, if, if we can legitimately say that we have never had trials or sufferings, we, we need to do some, some serious evaluation on our life. And it is, as those who have had our sins forgiven, we will experience the fallouts from a sinful world. And God's word has not left us to ourselves with these trials, with no instruction. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness and there are not many things more like our savior than to suffer through trials to the glory of god alone so let's look at our passage for this evening please turn me to james chapter one and we'll be reading through verses one through four james a servant of god and of the lord jesus christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of our good and sovereign God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, you are the master of all of creation. God, you have planned everything from the beginning to the end, Lord, and we know that even trials and sufferings are not outside of your control. God, I pray that we would know that, Lord, and that we would not just know that, but we would, Lord, that we would find peace in it, Lord, that we would be able to glorify your name all the more, Lord, when we feel the weight of the world, the weight of sin crushing down on our shoulders. God, you are good. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, a, a brief history lesson might, might be of some use uh, for us before we dive in uh, to the background and intent of this letter. There have been some throughout history who have tried to claim that this epistle should not have been added to the biblical canon. And this is mostly due to some of the language used in chapter 2 about the role of faith and works in the life of the Christian. And and on the surface, it might seem as if they are correct about removing this letter from Holy Scripture. But when we properly allow Scripture to interpret itself, we can see that there is no reason to believe that this letter contradicts any doctrine taught throughout the rest of Scripture. 
Calvin also speaks to this controversy in his commentary, and I, I, um, I won't read the, the full argument on it because that would take up uh, most of our time, but in its essence, he says, he says this, the, the issues that seem to come about in the second chapter can be explained by showing how James is more so proclaiming the grace of Christ rather than man's own work, and, and, and we, will, we will dive into that more when we, when we get to that chapter. Um, he, he also points out that, that just because we may see something that looks like a contradiction in Scripture, um, that does not mean that we must accept one and condemn the other. Uh, we can be sure that God has made no mistake in His Holy Word and that all Scripture can interpret itself. So let's start off by looking at the intent and background of this letter. As many of us know about this epistle, James's driving point is that the, the Christian life should not just be one of easy believism, but the saving faith that Christians are given are evidenced by their works. So as, as we go into the depths of this letter to the Jewish Christians of the day, we must see that James is spurring along believers to understand that their faith is not something that's held in a vacuum but one that pursues holiness as the Spirit works on us to sanctify us more into the image of the Christ who saved us. And in this period of time, roughly the early to mid-40s, the Christians in focus were experiencing a lot of persecution, as were many, if not most, of the Christians in this day. And as we will see later in another sermon, there were some conflicts that had entered some of these churches and because of this, there were some in the churches that would be called double-minded, as, as James warned. So, with all this background information, um, I want us to break down this passage into three parts. Um, so, let's, let's start off by looking, of course, at, at the first part. And uh, we'll call this part, um, Joyfulness in God's Providence. Joyfulness in God's Providence. And in verse 2, James charges the Christians hearing this letter to count all things joy when they find themselves in trials of various kinds. I think it's important that we take notice of the certainty with which James speaks here, right? While there are things in the Christian life that are unique to only certain believers, we, we can know that in the life of the follower of Christ, there will be trials. James uh, does not say, if you just so happen to come across any trials, he says, when you meet trials, we as those who are called to put to death the things of the flesh and of the world will as a certainty face trials. And now I'm, I, I'm not saying that we will in fact see the same trials as those who are around the world. We are so blessed to live in a country where, where I can stand here and, uh, and teach you this evening without any worry of someone coming in here to arrest me for wearing the badge of Christ, though it may happen someday, it is, it is not a fear that we have currently in, in our little pocket of the world. Um, but what I'm, I'm getting to is that we must know that in some form or fashion, we, we will see trials. And James also makes a point that, uh, that these trials will come in various kinds. Throughout history, we have seen believers beaten and tortured and murdered for their faith, while some 
who are slandered against and, and socially persecuted. Uh, and and do, do not be fooled into thinking that there is only one kind of persecution or one kind of trial or one kind of suffering. Uh, James is, is not the only person in, in Scripture who speaks like this. Uh, if you want to, you can turn me to 1 Peter chapter 4 and go look at verses 12 through 14. Um, I'll go ahead and, and read that passage. He says, uh, starting in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. A lot like what James has asserted, we should not be surprised when these trials come our way. But as a matter of fact, we should rejoice, as Peter puts it, or as James says, to count it all joy. And so how, how often do we find ourselves grumbling about the season of life we find ourselves in? When you come into trials, do you do you ever just look up and want to shake a fist at God? Do you find yourself coveting someone else's life? Maybe, maybe in moments of weakness when we find ourselves daydreaming about what it would be like to have someone else's lot. Or if I just had more obedient children, then I could count it all joy. Brothers and sisters, here, here's something that I believe that we tend to look over when we are in the midst of trials and sufferings, and here it is, the reason we come into trials is not because we just happen to fall into it accidentally, but because the sovereign God of the universe planned for it. We hear it all the time, right? Uh, don't, don't worry, God knew about this all along, and that's, that's somewhat comforting. Sure, he does know all things at all times, but believer, God is so much more intimately involved in the trials and sufferings of his children. Not only did he know about it, he planned it. And we can see this in so many places in Scripture. Think of the story of Joseph in Genesis. When his brothers sold him into slavery, what did he say when they returned to him? He told his brothers that even though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Joseph fully understood that God has his own purposes within our trials. And also the Apostle Paul says this quite clearly in Romans chapter 8, that, that all things come together for those who love God. And so we have to ask ourselves, how, how, how can we not trust this God? When we find ourselves doubting God in our trials, what, what we are doing is doubting the goodness of God. Do we not remember that God feeds the birds and the lilies? Then how much more will he take care of his children? And with that understanding of God's sovereignty in our lives, we can now have a better understanding of how we are to count these things as joy. It, it seems antithetical to how the rest of the world uh, sees any kind of trial. What, what the world says is conform yourself in, in any way possible so that you won't have to go through these issues. Or, or also, you know, just 
look to whatever mainstream idol is holding the culture and worship that God and all will be fine in your life. The world sees finding joy in trials and sufferings for the sake of God as a fool's game. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the wor- that the world or sorry that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But look how Peter put it in the passage we read earlier. He says in in verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, we can we can count it as joy because we are sharing in these sufferings with our savior. When the world hates you and you just want to fire right back at them, remember that they hated our Savior first and he still loved them. Even in their folly, even when he was hanging on a cross, having been beaten and spat upon and mocked and laughed at, he did not fire back at them at swift condemnation, even though that is what they rightfully deserved. In fact, He asked the Father to forgive them. This is what we rejoice in. That when when we have trials and when we have sufferings, we can remember that we have a Savior who died for us. We can be encouraged by the Holy Spirit who has made our hearts a temple for Himself because we are, in fact, sharing in the sufferings of our Savior. And what does the Savior require? That we simply trust in Him. That the sacrifice he made for us on the cross satisfied the wrath of the Father. And now those who are trusting in him will never have to taste that wrath. And this takes us to our next point. And and it answers an important question that we ask ourselves sometimes. And is what, what is the point of us having to go through trials? This next point is titled, Trials Produce Steadfastness. Let's look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Sweet, right to the point. But, but what is this steadfastness that these trials are producing? It's, it's, it's easy to say, hey, don't worry. You know, it's, it's all going to be for your good. But I don't think we can truly mean this if we don't understand what is being fashioned because of these trials. As an example, uh, when... When me and my family, when we sit down at the dinner table, we tell Eleanor that she must eat her vegetables, even though she thinks that they taste gross. Then when we tell her how these vegetables will will help her grow big and strong, she seems to like them more, surprisingly. And now, we really don't have to tell her to eat them. She, She does it on her own because she now understands better why it is good for her. She also eats them because she knows she'll get a treat if she does. And this, and this isn't the best example I, I know, trying to equate trials to eating your broccoli. But, uh, but like going through trials, when, when we understand the benefits of these things to the believer, it helps us understand why we must go through them. It helps us know that our trials and our sufferings are not meaningless, but they're producing something in us. Nothing in the life of the believer can be seen as meaningless. Everything is unfolding just as our Heavenly Father has predestined to happen. 
And what a sweetness and comfort that we can have knowing that God uses all of our trials and all of our sufferings to, to mold us and to shape us into the image of Christ. And these trials are producing steadfastness in us. And, and what is steadfastness? I think this, uh, this, this word isn't, isn't really used today uh, in today's vernacular. So while, while different translations use a, a few different words, the, the essence of the Greek is not lost. Um, the three words mostly used in other parts of Scripture besides steadfastness are endurance, patience, and perseverance. Endurance, patience, and perseverance. John Calvin and, and Matthew Henry both speak of the production of patience in the believer as we go through these tests. Uh, Matthew Henry says this about verse 3. The trial of faith worketh patience. The trying of one grace produces another. And the more, the more the suffering graces of a Christian are exercised, the stronger they grow. What a beautiful thing to know. That we as the children of God have received grace upon grace in such a way that these graces help produce and strengthen one another it's not like they just come out of thin air to the believer but they serve one another of course God God gives them freely to us of course but he does it in such a way that the testing of the grace of faith produces in us another grace which is steadfastness it's fascinating I think I think this should cause us to, to stop and reflect do we, do we find ourselves being strengthened when we go through trials? Can we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives? Uh, be careful not to try to take on these things on your own strength. Uh, one of the main points that we can take away from this is that we cannot endure these trials on our own. We must be trusting God. We, we must be taking these things to the Lord in prayer. John MacArthur makes, I think, I think a wonderful observation about one of the reasons why God lets us go through trials. He says that these trials should serve to humble us and remind us that anything we can benefit from these tests and trials are wholly the gift of God and not a reward for our hard work. It is always good to remember that when we feel like we've just gotten all these things figured out, that all of our works are nothing but filthy rags. We need to continually think of our Savior who never boasted in His works, even though He was sinless. And He endured every trial with perfect patience, even to the point of being hung on a cross and taking the Father's wrath for our sin, being our perfect sacrifice. With every test, trial, and suffering, God's elect are being made more like this bridegroom. And this takes us to our last point. God's sanctifying work in our perseverance. God's sanctifying work in our perseverance. Let's look at the last verse in this passage, verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James here seems to be summing up what he has said in the last couple of verses. And by, by that, I mean James has moved 
from, <clears throat> from the believer having his trials to enduring them with joy, reaping the benefits of these trials with the, stead, with the gift of steadfastness, and now persevering to the end. The steadfastness that has come to us by the testing of our faith has an effect on the rest of our lives. The work of the Spirit in producing steadfastness in us ultimately brings about a sanctifying work in us that allows us to grow in holiness and persevere to the end. This is a foundational understanding, I believe, for the doctrine of perseverance. We, on our own accord, cannot persevere to the end. We must have the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts or we will fall away. Without the Holy Spirit's work in us, we would not even get off the starting line, let alone finish the race. And we see it all the time. Someone who seems so zealous for God at one point in their life, and then the next thing we know, we see them rejecting the God that they once found so beautiful. It reminds me of the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. We see the one seed that falls and quickly sprouts up but has taken no root and quickly dies when the sun comes up and Jesus explained that this seed was like the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy but when trials and tribulations came it quickly fell away brothers and sisters are we like this seed when trials come our way do we quickly fold and act as those who have no saving faith or a God who's in charge of these things. I'm not saying that we will handle every trial perfectly. Because we are still sinners being sanctified. But look back on your life and ask yourself, do, do I see the fruit of steadfastness growing in my life? It may be hard to see sometimes, especially in the life of a newer believer but in time, as we grow in our relationship with God, <clears throat> we will be able to see how God has made us more like Christ. Do not be discouraged if you cannot see this uh, fully clearly. Remember that sanctification is a slow work that lasts literally from the moment of your regeneration to your last breath. For those who are trusting in Christ, God is at work in you whether you know it or not. So when I say look back and see if you are growing and persevering, what, what I'm not saying is to look back on these things for your assurance. Do not try to look backwards for assurance of your salvation. But rather look to Christ. Your salvation is not based on the degree with which you can tell that God is sanctifying you. But it is in the work of Christ alone you certainly can be encouraged by looking back and seeing what the Lord has done in your life. But do not dare look back on your growth and root your assurance in your own works. That is the whole point with which James is going to be expositing. Just like this last passage tells us, if we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we are being perfected. And with this salvation, we have a lack of nothing. Just like we are told in Psalm 23, if the Lord is our shepherd, we have nothing in lack because he is all we need. 
And what a blessed thought that those who have Christ as their Lord need nothing else. Charles Spurgeon said that he has learned to to kiss the wave that throws him upon the rock of ages. Brothers and sisters, as hard as it seems, we should see our sufferings in this way. I have an old friend who who told me this um, one time regarding trials. It's, It's like standing close up close to a stained glass window with our, our nose pressed against the glass. All we can see is, is one broken piece of glass that looks ugly and, and, and rigid, almost pointless. But as we take a step back, and another step, and another step, and another, we start to see this beautiful tapestry and work of art. Beloved, one day we will see what all of God's plan was for what it is truly. A wonderful and loving plan to redeem His people and glorify Himself. Even in the worst trials, in the worst persecution, in the worst sufferings we could think of. I'm sure that we can even see little bits of this now. Just looking back on some of our trials and sufferings and seeing how God has taken care of us, we can rest in this truth that God does take care of His children. If what I've said tonight feels feels heavy on your soul, know that that the work that is being done in you is, is not because you had to earn it. It's actually quite the opposite. So now when we look back and we see trials and sufferings that God has brought us through, we can rejoice all the more. We can truly sing, what have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms and I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. Brothers and sisters, if we are trusting in Christ alone, then we are truly safe from all alarms. In every trial, we can see that God has brought us here for a reason. And we can pray that God would get us to the other side, being made more like our Savior. Trust in this Savior today. So we're not promised tomorrow. Glory to God. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father in Heaven, Lord, what a sweet thing to know, God, that What you take us through, Lord, is not pointless. God, it is not meaningless. God, when we feel weak and we feel like we have nothing, Lord, please allow us to know that all we need is Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together. God, I pray that you would use it to make us more like our Savior. God, so that we are ready to face trials. God, pray that you would make us more like Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.